right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Looks like the sun's even coming out. Great day to be together. Yeah, if you're new here, uh, my name's Jeremy. I'm our Harrison campus pastor. Uh, we haven't launched the church yet, but excited to do that on September 11th. And so it's great seeing a bunch of people that are going to be joining the team there here this morning. And uh, yeah, we want to spend some time in God's Word today. So we're going to be continuing in our Family Dynamics sermon series this morning, taking a look at the relationship between elders and pastors and the congregation from 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. But I want to start by telling you about a man named Najib Razak. So Najib uh, was a charismatic, well-spoken, educated young man. Uh, Unlike, I'm guessing, everyone here, Najib grew up partly in Malaysia and partly in the UK where he went to college. Uh, What makes Najib even more interesting is that he was a son of the Malaysian Prime Minister. When his dad died uh, when he was 23, Najib got uh, more and more into politics until in 2009, Najib, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, After rising quickly through the ranks in 2009, Najib became the Prime Minister of the country of Malaysia. So Najib campaigned with the slogan, One Malaysia, and talked a lot about building unity between the country of Malaysia and and uniting people from different levels of socioeconomic uh, positions. And then when he got in power, one of the big things that he did was that he created the 1MDB, uh, which was basically a foreign investment portfolio. It wanted to, to offer Malaysians opportunities to invest and, and grow their wealth and then also build the country as they did so. Unfortunately, even though Mr. Najib Razak started off strong in his tenure as Prime Minister, things took a turn for the worse a little over halfway through his term. In 2015, he became involved in a major corruption scandal and when accused of corruption, rather than responding in openness and transparency, he did the exact opposite. He fired his deputy prime minister, he shut down two newspapers in Malaysia, and then he passed the bill so that he could have even more power to rule the way that he wanted. In 2018, Uh, The Barrison National Party, which was a party that Najib was serving under, a party that had been in power, get this, over 60 years. So it was just a given, right, that this party was going to get in power. They were booted out, and shortly after, uh, Najib was arrested by the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, convicted of abuse of power, money laundering, and a criminal breach of trust. It was discovered that this 1MDB agency development fund that he had created was actually investing in shell companies in foreign nations that were all owned by buddies of him, and a lot of that money came back to Mr. Najib himself. So a Malaysian government doesn't know exactly how much money Najib took from all this, but it's in the hundreds of millions, it's actually billions of dollars that this gentleman took from this just developing nation of Malaysia. Pretty sad. He and his wife lived in opulence. 
They bought Van Goghs and Monets, expensive paintings. Uh, you know, he bought his wife all sorts of fancy jewelry. And then he bought, he bought uh, just an inexpensive boat, just a $250 million yacht. You know, Eldon's got a couple of those on Harrison, I think. Yeah. Yeah, one at Cultus as well, right? Yeah, if you ever want to borrow them, just talk to Pastor Eldon before he leaves on his sabbatical. Anyways, terrible leader. Uh, he was then arrested, and he is now serving 12 years in prison, as he should. Why do I bring up Najib, some foreign ruler? Well, we all uh, experience, we all see leadership around the world in different ways. You know, there are political leaders, maybe there's leaders uh, in school, more local leaders, leaders in households, but also leaders in churches. I think our hopes for our worldly leaders is that they would lead us well. And yet, if you're anything like me, there's, there's also kind of this expectation that, uh, you know, they're going to do something for personal gain. Our passage here in, in 1 Peter 5 gives us a very different standard for leadership in the church. And so, I want to ask you to, to stand to your feet as we read our text for this morning. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The word of God, you may take your seats. So from our text this morning, I want to show us that uh, elders and pastors, I'm going to group them both into this shepherding call this morning from 1 Peter 5. We're called to lead and serve the church well, uh, that we might gain an eternal reward. I've got three points for us. Um, I first had six reasons. I've pared it down a little bit, so we're going to do three. Three reasons for being a shepherd. Go with six, Eldon says. Yeah, maybe I'll sneak them in there yet. Three reasons for being a shepherd, uh, the right attitude of a shepherd, and finally the reward of a shepherd. So... Let me pray for us as we dive into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for uh, the authoritative truth that it contains uh, and conveys to us. Thank you that, even though written thousands of years ago, that your Word has implications for us this morning. And I pray that by your Spirit, uh, you would apply it to our lives. And so, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So three, or maybe six reasons for being a shepherd. So Peter starts off this passage uh, in the following way. So I exhort the elders among you. Now I want you to catch that, that first word, so. It's the Greek word boon. I'm not sure if that means anything to anyone here. But elsewhere, the word is translated then or therefore. Now if you're a good 
Bible student, what do you ask when you see the word therefore at the beginning of a passage? What is it there for? That's right. You look at some context, right? Excellent. So I want to back up a little bit and see why it is, first of all, that Peter gives these exhortations to elders. So 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So if you were to read through the book of 1 Peter, there'd be one theme that would stick out above all others. And that would be the theme of persevering through suffering. That word suffering or trials comes up over and over and over again. And believe one of the reasons why Peter gives this exhortation to shepherds to shepherd well is because we are called to care for the flock through the suffering that each one of us experience in this life. We're called to persevere through that, but God in his grace also gives us pastors and elders, shepherds, to help us walk through those difficult times. So that's Peter's first reason for giving this exhortation to shepherds. The second one is in the next couple of verses, verses 17 to 18. For it is time, Peter writes, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter now goes on to talk about this theme of judgment and connects our sufferings as being part of God's sanctifying judgment for the believer. Now, he mentions here, if the righteous is scarcely saved, by that he doesn't mean that as believers we're, you know, we should be worried about being saved, that we're just going to get in by the skin of our teeth. What he's talking about is that salvation's not easy. You know, we have to persevere through, through trials, through sufferings, but that through that, that elders, pastors are called to shepherd us. And the second reason is that we should shepherd well to prepare God's people for the judgment of Christ. Because one day Christ will return and there will be a judgment of the living and the dead for all of eternity. The third reason is from our our final verse preceding chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter, I think, recognizes here that serving as an elder is, it's not easy, right? You're dealing with people, you're dealing often with conflict or challenges, but that in the midst of that suffering, that we're called to do good, 
And so for our elders, even though their role is, is at times challenging, that they should persevere, trusting in their creator and faithfully serving the flock. So those are three reasons that Peter gives for shepherding well. Now he follows that up. There are not as much reasons, but, but grounds for why he gives this command in verse 1. So we're going to read uh, 1 Peter 5, 1. So then, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Paul now gets closer to giving that exhortation. It says, although he first identifies himself as an apostle in 1 Peter 1.1, now he says, you know, I give this exhortation knowing what this is going to mean. I'm, I'm a fellow elder. He recognizes the sufferings of Christ and that we are uh, we're partakers of that. And then he points to a future reward, which we'll get to at the end of this sermon. But what I want to say to, to shepherds, to pastors, maybe those considering serving as an elder, is that while serving in these positions is not an easy task, uh, you know, the help and care that we're able to offer uh, the flock, Christians walking in, in their faith, that's huge. The, the ability that we're able to prepare people for the coming judgment and the opportunity to do good, these are powerful motivators to serve as an elder, as a pastor. So that all brings me to um, a second point, the right attitude of a shepherd. After giving his preliminary grounds for this exhortation, Peter instructs elders how they should lead the churches that they're part of. Verses 2 to 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, if you look closely, Peter starts off by making a really crucial observation. See, he writes, shepherd the flock, not of Eldon or of Ron or of Matt or of Jeremy, but of who? Of God, right? This is huge for shepherds to recognize that as we lead, the church is not ours, but it belongs to God. And so that calling of serving as a shepherd is a high responsibility as we seek to lead well the flock that belongs to God himself. Another um, interesting observation that Peter makes about the position from which elders lead is that shepherds, elders, pastors, they're called to exercise oversight, so they have authority over the church. And yet Peter writes there in verse 2, this is a flock of God that is among you. And so elders are called to lead as those who find themselves among the flock. We lead, but we also serve the flock. Peter then goes on to list three different ways, three different attitudes in which pastors and elders should lead in the church. First of all, he says, <clears throat> not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. 
In the church that I served in Winkler, it felt like um, we were always short elders. And so that brought on two temptations for those of us in the church, even in leadership. One, there was a temptation to lower the bar, right? We've got biblical qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 of, of what an elder should look like. But Lord, like, that guy's almost good enough. I know he, he, he does not meet that area, but can we just get him in there? A second temptation was, you know, let's just twist the arms of those qualified men so that they will serve. And yet, what Peter is telling us right here is that serving in the role of an elder pastor can be a, a great way of glorifying God, but it has to be at God's direction. One cannot serve or not serve out of fear of man, right? Because someone might say, oh, you should serve as an elder, or you shouldn't serve as an elder, and yet there's no reason why you shouldn't, and, and God is leading you in that way. So elders are called to serve willingly, not under compulsion. Peter's second admonition is that elders should serve not for shameful gain, but that they should serve eagerly. Back up way into the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel, uh, five years after Israel was sent into exile into Babylon, he came along with these, these hard words of judgment against Israel, declaring to them why as a nation God had sent them into exile. And one of the reasons that he states is because of selfish shepherding. Let's listen to Ezekiel 34, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Ezekiel's point here, Peter's point is that there cannot be this, this motivation of selfish gain. We're called as pastors, elders, to shepherd for the best interest of the flock. Not for, not for wealth, not for fame, but for the sheep themselves. Peter's final uh, command or, or attitude check is that, Pete, that elders must serve in a way that is not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So a wise Manitoban friend of mine who loves the church dearly, uh, but knows all too well the shortcomings of the church, often referred to the church as stubborn, smelly, salty, stupid sheep. A whole bunch of S words. And, uh, you know, it might be a little bit shocking, but it's, it's true, right? Like sheep themselves are, are not the smartest animals. They need to be led and need to be led well. You and I are sometimes a lot like those sheep, right? We need to be led, you know, well, lovingly, carefully, 
but we can be a little bit stubborn and, and smelly and salty. And the temptation for, for church leaders as we seek to lead is say we get some direction that we feel God leading in, but all of a sudden there's, there's one of those stinky, smelly, stubborn sheep opposing that direction. How do we then care for the sheep? Peter says, do not domineer, right? We're called to care for the sheep, not to domineer, but to, to, to care and, and live our lives in such a way that we're an example, even when we come across, you know, some stubborn, smelly sheep. Love all of you, by the way. You all smell great this morning. Just, just clarifying that. It's a call to serve, right? For elders, for pastors. Uh, we're called to lead, but we're called to serve, uh, following the example of Christ. Um, one of the elders in, in the church in Manitoba that I pastored, um, his example, the, the way that he led, really stuck out to me. His name was Bernie. Uh, when I got to the church, he had been serving on the elder board for a couple of years already, and so the terms there were five years. Uh, I respected the way that he led the couple of years that he was on after I got there. Then he went on a one-year kind of sabbatical that the Constitution required. But during that year, uh, the church experienced some, some major changes, uh, challenges, conflict. Uh, COVID was, was one of those things. And so we had that shortage of elders. And so myself and others, we were going to Bernie and almost pleading with him, like, Bernie, come serve again. Like, you're, you're gifted. You're, you're so good at this. And Bernie didn't give in immediately. He, you know, like Peter says, he didn't give in to compulsion, but he heeded God's calling and timing. And eventually he did let his name stand. But in the interview that we did with the other elders, I remember how we asked him the question, why? You still wanted to discern, even though we needed him, but why do you want to serve as an elder? And his answer was, you know what? I actually don't really want to, but God is calling me to. I sense that, and so here I am before you. And so his, his answer, his heart was not, okay, I, I don't want to. His heart was rather, I know the challenges already of serving as an elder, but I'm willing to do it because that's where, where God is leading. He wasn't like other elders who actually sought that position for, him, for themselves so that they might gain some sort of authority and power to lead in the church. He didn't want any of that, but he wanted to be faithful to God's leading, and that was to, to serve the flock there in that place. So a couple applications, both for, for the church and then for those of us serving in an elder pastor capacity. For us, this is a gut check. How are we leading in the church? What, what is our motivation? Is it for some sort of earthly gain, whether that's, that's wealth or, or fame? You know, I'm doing this for, for Jeremy, that all might know that I'm going to be the best pastor in Harrison, which will be true, but... Also the worst at the same time, so. In Harrison, yes. <laughs> What's our motivation, right? Is it, is it for our own personal gain, or is it out of a, a calling of God to serve the flock, right? And then for you as a church, I believe this is, 
this is a huge comfort. As we look at leaders in the world around us, and not that, the, not that we're immune to it in the church, uh, but leaders around us in the world, so many leaders leading in that way, right? To seek personal gain, personal advancement. Here in scripture, Peter is giving us a standard for church leadership. This is the attitude, this is the way in which we're called to lead. And so, if we're not, if I'm not leading in that way, lovingly, with two or three others, you know, hold us accountable, hold me accountable to that. But as we, we do lead in these ways that Peter prescribes, huh, take it easy. Like, breathe a sigh of relief and willingly entrust yourself to the leaders that God has put above you. So thank God for, for his word and the standards that he gives us. Last point is the reward of a shepherd. Peter touches on this uh, in verse 4. is his biggest motivator for serving these positions. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Throughout the, the New Testament, this word crown is used elsewhere. James uses it in his epistle. Paul uses it in 2 Timothy. Both those places it refers to that the prize of salvation that is there for all those who place their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. But here Peter's using a different meaning for it. Here he's referring very specifically to this, this heavenly reward uh, above and beyond salvation. This teaching of, of different degrees of heavenly reward, it's not pervasive through scripture, uh, but it is clearly taught. Another passage is, is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. Um, Paul writes this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no other foundation, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So there's a sense that we're called to, to build on Christ, right? He is our only sure foundation. Uh, it's through him and through Jesus alone that we have salvation. But beyond that, we, we build through our works. Not for salvation, right? But for some sort of heavenly reward. We don't know what that's going to be like. Uh, it's not something that will create jealousy or envy. But there will be a degree of reward for the believer. And, and Peter here in 1 Peter 5, he offers this as a motivator for those who might serve as elders or pastors within the church. Peter finds this uh, something that brings him hope throughout the sufferings that he's uh, persevered through. In Acts 4, uh, we read that Peter was uh, imprisoned because of proclaiming the gospel. 
Acts 5, he's imprisoned again and then beaten that time before being released. Uh, Some of Jesus' last words to Peter in John 21 is that he reveals that Peter will die crucified. And yet, in spite of the the suffering that Peter has faced, in spite of, you know, the, the, the death that Jesus has prophesied he will die, because of this hope that is before Peter, he perseveres and serves as an elder. And so, the hard, selfless, sacrificial work of shepherding might not ever fully be appreciated in this life, but it's something that we can confidently trust that Jesus will uh, reward uh, in the life to come. Now, as great as, you know, those rewards are, none of that is possible without the work of Christ on the cross. And that is something Peter refers to uh, so well in 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 25. He, Jesus, Peter writes, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As we close, may we, may we follow Christ, may we seek him, you know, motivated by those heavenly rewards, but may we ultimately seek Jesus. Without him, uh, we are lost in our sins. It's only because he bore our sins upon the cross, sins that separated us from God, that put us in God's (coughs) debt, that made it so that we were recipients of God's wrath, But because of Christ's work on the cross, we can have forgiveness of sins. And we can know that there is a far better hope awaiting us in heaven, eternity with our Lord and Savior. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the standards that you set, the direction that you set for leadership within the church. Uh, I pray for, specifically for our elders at Central, Lord, that you would strengthen them, uh, that you would give them much wisdom and discernment, and that you would use them, Lord, to, um, to, to build your church in Central um, and to build your kingdom for your honor and glory. Jesus, thank you that you are our ultimate example, example of what good shepherding looks like. You are a chief shepherd. You are the good shepherd that uh, laid down his life uh, for his sheep. And so may we always um, remember that as we seek to live our lives for your honor and glory. We love you. Uh, We praise you. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.